You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today we're speaking with Danielle Main about animal abuse. Danielle, can you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. So, uh, as you said, my name is Danielle Main, um, and I'm here as the founder of Leash of Hope Assistance Dogs, which I founded in 2014. Part of our mandate is to work with people with disabilities, pair them with fully trained assistants or guide dogs. Um, but we primarily take puppies rescued from shelters. Uh, so we don't breed dogs in our program. We rescue dogs. Right. Wonderful. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more a little later in this episode. I want to ask you a few questions about your work with Leash of Hope. But uh, usually we like to start our episodes by talking about what the subject means. So in this case, what is animal abuse? And I think a lot of people are going to have an idea in their minds of generally what they think animal abuse is. And I don't know if there is a specific definition of it somewhere. But uh, what would you say constitutes animal abuse? So if I was going to give a quick off-the-cuff definition, I would say any kind of uh, harm, physical or psychological, to a dog, whether it's immediate and acute or long-term and chronic, would be considered animal abuse. Right. And do you think that that could be extrapolated like uh, outside of dogs specifically to other animals as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've previously worked a lot uh, with horses and it, that can be seen um, in other industries as well, equestrian industries with dogs, other pets. It's definitely a possibility when you're dealing with a living, breathing animal that can't speak for itself. Do animals have rights the same way that people have rights? Are they kind of different or are, do they have no rights at all? Uh, it depends on where you go. There's definitely, um, you know, uh, bodies and entities out there meant to protect animal welfare. It could be argued that we need to do a better job of putting more rights in place uh, and advocating for them better in situations. Um, but it really, it's a bit of a gray zone. Right. Okay. So it kind of varies from place to place and, and maybe from animal to animal and sort of how we're perceiving the rights. It sounds like mm -hmm. it's maybe a little less clear cut than it is with humans. Correct. It's not as cut and dry. It's very much a situational or um, regional thing on how different cities uh, or, or municipalities want to deal with situations of mishandling or miscare of animals. And it would be great to see that being something that um, is, is broadened and creates firmer guidelines around it because unfortunately these things are really common still. Right. Well, that's unfortunate to hear. It, does it become complicated when, you, when you're dealing with animals that are pets versus animals that are food? Um, because it seems like if you're able to kill an animal for food or for leather or for fur, whatever it might be, that it becomes less clear what the rights of the animal are or what's considered abuse and what isn't. Like, I think it would be pretty clear that you don't just take a healthy dog or cat and shoot it in the face and like that would probably be considered animal abuse I would think. Yeah absolutely and I think that's the same considered abuse even if we look at those other industries and thankfully um, those are and those are two very different conversations but there's been lots of animal advocates that have 
put a lot of work in place to try to standardize how animals are treated uh, when being used for our benefit. And that's not an industry that I that I mean a, in a lot as someone mm-hmm. who's primarily works um, with domesticated animals. But uh, there's definitely a lot of great advocates and researchers out there that does stuff around making sure that there's ethical use of animals. But I would say that they would argue and lots of people would argue that that's abuse either way. And there's lots of being done to prevent that kind of abuse for animals being euthanized for our benefit. Right. And I imagine the same would be true of um, scientific research, for instance, testing products on animals. That's a that's a big one, and that's something that um, all of these all of these things, as far as you know, use of animals that happens behind closed doors. It's not as obvious as how someone's treating a pet, you know, chained in a backyard, are things that um, are only going to have change when we as people tell um, these large corporations that it's important to us. There's huge movements to help prevent um, animal abuse with animal testing, but that's not going to stop until we as people go, I'm not going to buy your products if you're going to keep doing that. And that's the biggest issue with industries like that. Right. So tip for our listeners who want to help, just don't buy Mm -hmm. products that are testing on animals. Yeah. There's some great sites out there that will actually outline what companies um, do or don't do animal testing. And that's very easy to find online and to make sure that you're only going through products and companies that are ethical with the how they interact with animals. Right. So those be like cruelty-free products. Absolutely. Lines. Yeah. Uh, and this may not be a question that you're able to answer because I know that your focus is on domestic animals, particularly dogs. But do you know what the most common form of animal abuse is or which types of animals tend to receive the most amount of abuse? You know, I think that's that's a hard one because it's so it's such a vast thing. You see everything from uh, cats and dogs and horses and farm animals being kept in horrific situation where they're being um, neglected and and confined uh, or even in hoarder situations. So that's a form of uh, abuse just as negative or influential um physical violence could be on an animal in their life. And I think that unfortunately those situations where dogs or animals, farm animals are being miscapped are, are probably more common than we'd like to think. And, and those senses, I, I think that definitely like pets are a big one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dogs and cats. Yeah. Well, that's why it's important that we have yeah. organizations like Leash of Hope rescuing dogs in that case. Mm-hmm. And is, I think you've sort of mentioned this to some extent, but is animal abuse quite prevalent in our world today? I think it is, uh, and it's prevalent in forms that we don't recognize as people, and those are the dogs that are maybe in severe psychological distress because someone has decided to keep a high drivey dog as a house pet in an apartment Mm. and has completely gotten stressed out to the nines is maybe driven to the point of almost being aggressive and uh, because of the situation it's being put in and the owner has no idea that that's considered a form of abuse and neglect. So that kind of prevalence I think is, is, it's, it's higher than it should be, especially in this day and age where there's lots of people working from home and during COVID decided to go out and get pets. Mm. Um, so I think that these kinds of insidious forms of animal abuse and neglect are way more common than we realize, lots of people realize. Right. And I guess that's a good example of uh, ways people can find themselves in that situation. Mm-hmm. COVID's hit, you're feeling lonely, you want to get a pet, maybe you don't think it through properly and you bring a pet that really shouldn't be in a small apartment yeah. into a small apartment. I wonder too if have you noticed that there is 
an impact from people who've already had a pet. Maybe they've been living in a house and they've had a nice yard for their dog and just because of inflation or losing their job or whatever, they've had to downsize into an apartment and, and also found themselves in a situation like that. Well, you know, actually, I don't I don't see an issue with being a dog owner in an apartment whatsoever. It's actually what we as people do um, that's way more important than where we live. Actually, in fact, um, you will see cases where there's dogs much healthier mentally, physically, with people living in apartments because they go out and they hike and they take the dog mm -hmm. to the beach and there is that stimuli and that interaction um, Whereas the flip side to that is historically lots of people think, oh, yeah, it's great. I've got a yard for the dog and the dog just gets stuck out in the yard. But that's still not stimuli. That's not exercise. Mm. That's not engagement. Because that's, they're not taking them on walks. That's and still and neglect well. in a form. Right. So that yard does not make up for that lack of activity that they actually need to be OK. Right. OK. That's a good point to me. Thank you. I think at this point we could probably start talking about some of the work that you do with Leash of Hope. We've, I think sure. we've built a bit of an understanding what animal abuse is, yeah. but I want to focus a little bit on your specific area of expertise. So yeah. can you explain what Leash of Hope does? I started Leash of Hope with a colleague of mine um, back in 2014 because we felt that there was a hole in the industry that needed to be filled. And as two women with disabilities that could see a path to kind of a better way of how we wanted to see dogs be trained um, with the use of rescue dogs, we decided to start from square one scratch, which is quite hard to do with a service dog organization when you're trying to do it properly. And um, so, and we started with uh, my first guide dog, Pedro, who was a street stray from Mexico. Um, and we kind of used him as a, as a bit of a guinea pig. And he was trained through the gamut of uh, as a guide dog because I'm someone who's low vision. And we train him, trained him to do tasks like retrieving, pressing buttons, taking off coats as you would for someone who uh, needs a mobility dog. And then we also started teaching him work to, around medical alerting just to kind of see if we could do it. And he became the jack of all trades dog uh, you know, Mexican street stray that could really do it all and can kind of prove that it could be done. And from there, we we took off with the concept and really started um, uh, training dogs one on one specifically for people based on what the dog wanted to do, and what the dog's natural drive was to do. Mm. So if a dog is maybe more catered towards emotional support as opposed to physical support, then you would sort of push them off in that direction? Um, yes, and, and oftentimes those dogs don't go into full service dog work just because emotional support dogs or, or uh, emotional support or, or comfort is something that we all get out of, um, out of a dog. Mm -hmm. So based on international standards, for a dog to be considered necessary as a, an assistance dog, it has to be able to do three specific tasks to help a person while in public. So regardless of whether you're training a dog for someone um, who has maybe PTSD, autism, the things that's, that would are more along the psychological route, there's still specific tasks, whether it's med retrieval, um, providing deep pressure therapy, bringing that person who's dissociated to a bench or an exit. So it's still... Um, a specific kind of, of tasking that's more than just kind of comfort, but you definitely have dogs that are way more tuned into that uh, and able to stay grounded with someone who is in psychological distress. And then dogs that aren't that go, oh, you're really stressed out, I don't want to be around you, <laughs> right? So you get both and we would put the dogs into the type of work that they excelled at and, and pair them with clients that they would excel at rather than a first come first serve matching kind of deal. 
Right. I mean, it's incredible that dogs are able to do any of these tasks, mm-hmm. really. Like the fact that a dog can go and retrieve your medication for yeah. you or help you, like to, one, recognize when the help mm-hmm. is needed and then also be able to do that. So I, I'm guessing there's a significant amount of training that goes into that. Can you maybe... Um, let us know sort of what that training yeah. looks like a little bit. So it takes two years of training. And one of the things that we set out to do with our program when we designed it was to be more hands-on with the handlers that came through our program to make them, first off, better dog owners and better handlers uh, and and give them more time with our staff and our team for the purpose of making them in the long term better dog handlers. Um, a lot of industry standards guide and service dogs are paired after doing a two or three week intensive and then they're sent off on their own uh, with, of course, the support in their, from their programs. And there's nothing wrong with this model. But we saw that there's lots of people in situations where they're getting their dogs being sent home. And because all of a sudden this person has had to learn a new language of how to speak dog and the dog is all of a sudden with a new person in a new environment, things can fall apart easily. So we said, how do we fix that? So we spend a good 10 months um, kind of tapering off, like like sending the baby bird out of the nest uh, with our handlers in order to mitigate um, these concerns and make these people really strong dog handlers first and, and foremost. So in total, it can take two to three years to train each dog and the handler. Wow, what a process. And Mm -hmm. how did you learn how to do that? So between my skill set and my colleague's skill set, I had a background that was much more in uh, dog welfare, dog canine psychology. I worked in a a couple of vet clinics to a grooming salon, and I did professional dog boarding for dogs with special behavioral or medical needs. And my counterpart, Tessa, had more formal training and an apprenticeship with another uh, assistance dog school that's no longer around. And so between the two of us, we kind of had a magic combination of skill set where we could work off of each other, um, as well as with my background, working in the therapeutic riding industry and working with people with disabilities. And now as an RMT doing massage therapy, I have an additional skill set of, of understanding medical background of how um, people's situations may look on paper as far as medically and how we can help them. And, and so that was the, the tool set that we needed to, to be able to put this together. Right. So are you still working as an RMT while doing that at the same time? I am. I actually ran Leash of Hope while going through RMT school. So it was like full-time school and full-time running an organization. And I I still don't know how I really did it. So don't ask me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. What prompted you to, to start Leash of Hope? Like you, You've talked about why having a service dog is useful for you and, and that you found this other person. Was that really all it was? Like you just found this other person and you kind of brainstorming ideas and thought, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, you know, it really came down to how we saw the industry functioning as a whole, how we saw that there's a lack of services in BC um, for for properly trained assistance animals. And we really thought that it's, it's a necessity. It, it can't be a competitive industry to have more professional service providers available to give people that should have guide and service dogs a tool, another tool in their toolkit, um, is a benefit to the community as a whole, because otherwise lots of people 
turn to doing things like either trying to train dogs on their own without an adequate skill set, which can be really problematic for like the public and really problematic for the dog's well-being, or they don't end up with that resource at all and their world ends up being a little bit smaller. Um, and it, it, so at the end of the day, we wanted to benefit the community and we had ideas of how we felt that we could offer something different that might work differently than the industry standard of, of showing up, being paired with a guide or service dog, doing the two, three weeks and being sent off. And I guess jumping from there to where you are now, you've seen a lot of growth. Like how many dogs are you, are you working with at any given time? So we tend to train in place, uh, four to seven dogs a year. And so now we've been doing it for eight years. And at this point we have, I think, 36 dogs. Um, it started with in the beginning, uh, literally Tessa and myself, both of us training one dog ourselves in our own home at a time. And now we have fosters, puppy raisers, which is a lot of fun, um, helping us and coming in and doing training and, and working the dogs. And so it means that we can meet the needs of our community a little bit better and which has been great growth to see. That happened actually accidentally, actually. We rescued a, a mama dog from California who was pregnant with nine puppies, but we didn't know. Oh, so wow. very quickly, we expanded and needed fosters and more resources because we got a phone call going, are you sure you want to put this dog on a truck when she's about to you know, have babies? And we were like, oh, <laughs> I guess so. Wow. I mean, that's pretty incredible how you've been able to find dogs. Is that typically at worst if someone reaches out to you and says, this animal needs rescuing, and then you, you set something up? Are there disqualifying factors? Because I, I imagine it's probably easier to train a puppy than, than a rescue animal. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so a bit of both. Our main thing when we look to build a rescue connection is we want someone who's also a professional on the other end of where we're getting the dogs from to run assessments for us, at least a preliminary assessment. So we have a greater chance of success. So when the dog comes in of them working out in our program, and if they don't, at least we know that a dog has met some certain criteria where they might still be a really good pet. Um, Cause for us, it's really important to do ethical rescuing, which it, meaning that we're bringing dogs in that have the capacity to be healthy, happy, functioning members of society. And the unfortunate reality of, of rescuing sometimes, not all the time, is that you can have dogs that are, have had gone through serious trauma mm -hmm. and trying to integrate them into a family city environment is not fair on them. So for us to be ethical and make sure that we're bringing the dogs into a situation that is going to be good for them as well is important to us. So it's, it's actually less about whether or not that dog is capable of being trained after having that traumatic experience and more about it's just not ethical to put that dog in that situation after everything they've been through? Well, it's, it's both because if you have, just like us as people, if you've gone through um, a huge trauma in some form and you could be subject to extremely stressful environments, um, whether that's crowds, obnoxious people, uh, anything, any kind of thing that could be seen as things that will elevate that fight or flight in your body, you're probably not going to be good if someone goes, we're going to offer you this job, come to Canada and you're going to be a security guard for a concert, you know, for, for GM place downtown as some, if you have severe trauma, that's probably as much as you're going to be like, well, so going to Canada sounds good, but I don't think I could do that if that's that job, right? Right. So we have to look at both. We have to make sure uh, we meet the three earmarks that the handler is going to be safe and helped with mm -hmm. what they need. The dog is going to be ha happy, healthy, and safe, and the public is going to be safe. Right. Um, and I guess that, that actually brings us to 
a point that um, you mentioned wanting to talk about a little earlier, which is dogs being misrepresented as service dogs mm -hmm. and um, taking them out in public. Can you maybe expand on what it is that you wanted to discuss around that? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a hot topic. I understand that. And I might have an unpopular opinion about this. But uh, just like other medical resources, I think service and guide animals are not something that lay people public should be doing on their own without professional um, supervision and help, mostly because of the dog's welfare. We as lay people, when we don't have a skill set and tool set to recognize um, A, what we should be doing in public with a dog, or B, when a dog is maybe in distress or a situation isn't safe, we put first and foremost the dog at huge risk. And um, it becomes an incredibly selfish thing that we've decided we're going to put this dog in this bad situation for our own comfort mm -hmm. uh, or our own benefit in some way. And that doesn't make a person's need for a service animal any less valid. But I highly encourage people to avoid going that route and seeking professional help before just putting a dog in a public place because of their own, well, their own uh, desire to have that as a tool. Right. And is that something that happens quite often or are there like regulations around which animals can be categorized as service animals and therefore be allowed in certain places? Maybe I'm thinking of the U.S. because I mm -hmm. sometimes get them confused. But I seem to recall that you, you can't ask someone if a dog is a service animal. Um, so the, the U.S. and Canada are different, and lots of places are different. We do have regulations here in Canada. Unfortunately, every province is different, which makes it really hard. Mm -hmm. But federally, uh, uh, federal government and human rights recognizes a person with a disability with a properly trained dog to assist them has the right to be in public places. Mm -hmm. Different provinces have different rules enforced around how they want to manage service dogs or help people. But the reality is that people still put dogs in public places, whether that's because they just want to bring their dog somewhere or the people that legitimately have a need for a dog but don't have the resources to access it, which is why it's important that schools like Leash of Hope or other guide dog schools that we have in the province or out of province that people go out to are accessed instead of people doing it on their own. Um, because, you know, without these these tools, these people don't have access. And like I said, it is, it is definitely valid. But um, with regulations uh, we have here in BC, I think that there's also a lack of education. Lots of public places don't know what to look for, don't know what to ask or what to do. Here in BC, I think the biggest things that I tell businesses to to try to recognize the signs of the dog itself. Does it look like it should be there? Is it identifiable with a vest? Does it look comfortable? Is it well-trained? Is it bothering anybody? These are those markers because you also have a responsibility to someone who comes into your business with an, a service or a guide dog to make sure that another dog in your store or your business uh, isn't going to put the other dog or, or team at risk. Mm -hmm. um, so having an understanding of not just legislation, but actually what that looks like is, is, is really important. Um, and in the States, I think they're allowed to ask is it a service dog and what does it do for you? And that's in the U.S. and here it's it's so different. It's so all over the place. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I don't know all of the rules around that. I just saw a video as I was doing some research about yeah. someone who tried bringing a service dog into a business and the business said, no, we don't allow dogs. And the person <laughs> said, 
well, this is a service dog. And they said, prove it. And he said, I don't mm -hmm. have to by law. And so it, you do you know. if your dog is showing like if your dog isn't behaving, it's being disruptive, it's bothering people. They do have that. Like they actually use a business as the responsibility to keep your other patrons safe. Right. Okay. Right. So we do have that right to ask if it's a service dog. We don't as public have the right to take copies of ID like we, you know, government, BC government issues, ID cards mm -hmm. that people can get. Um, or you can, most uh, large programs, schools give an ID card saying, yes, this dog was trained by our school. So businesses in public don't have the right to copy these pieces of personal identification, but they definitely have the right to ask, especially if the dog isn't presenting as such. And it should never, that question should never come from what the handler looks like. Mm. And I think that's a big problem that we have. That's um, where discrimination might come into play. Yeah, where lots of, I mean, even me as someone who's low vision, um, because I don't quote unquote look blind, I've had, I've had that happen. Oh, it could, is it actually, are you actually blind? <laughs> like, you know, and then we're getting into the realm of like, well, how much education and do you have to be really questioning my, you know, my medical diagnosis of one I've had since I was a child mm -hmm. um, because of lack of education and understanding of what disability looks like. So it's much more effective to look at what the dog is doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think what, what are they expecting from you that you walk around with a big sign on your head I, or something like that? I don't know. Or that they talk to me and I look away the other way, <laughs> mm. you know, because uh, I think there's lots of like the media portrayal of people who are blind is, is not, it's not quite right. So. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and I mean, that's um, possibly a topic for a different episode totally. of our podcast, but yeah. um, as with pretty much every episode we've done here, there's always like crossover yeah. within, within the issues that we talk about or intersectionality, as, as you might say. Is there anything that we haven't covered at the moment that you'd like to bring up and have a conversation about? I think that if we have the time, it'd be a really good opportunity for us to delve more into um, the conversation of that, uh, you know, since, especially since you wanted someone to come here to talk about animal abuse, so like mm -hmm. how do we as dog owners or pet owners recognize when we may be oblivious to the neglect of our own animals, mm -hmm. whether that's through our lifestyle, misuse of equipment. And I think that these are the things where I would like to see pet owners do a little bit better, especially with dogs more than anything. And I know lots of people are struggling with dogs that they've gotten during the pandemic. So I think that delving into that topic of... Um, of, of the neglect side of abuse that, you know, uh, we might not realize that we as dog owners do is, is a, is a really important topic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd love to dive into that. Uh, so what, what are some key issues that you are seeing with, with regard to people not realizing that they're being abusive towards their pets? Um, you know, and it's so hard, it's so hard to hear that no one wants to think that they're the ones that's causing their dog distress, you know? Right. Especially and, if they love the dog so much. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what also comes down to with these relationships with our animals, especially when you go into that realm of like people trying to utilize their dogs as, as assistance dogs, it comes from a, a, a genuine place and it's never from a place of, of intentional, um, maliciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that making sure that we as dog, especially when you start to see dogs showing any kind of behaviors, if your dog's starting to chew on things, your dog's starting to become leash reactive, your dog is starting to maybe become a little bit self-destructive with licking excessively, chewing excessively. These are signs that your dog might not be getting what it needs in some way and working with a professional or looking at your day-to-day -day lifestyle. Um, I, encourage people to make like, um, especially with your dogs, 
a pie chart and decide to fill out, okay, how much of my pie chart is my dog spending home alone? Mm. How much of my pie chart is my dog spending actually like physically running and playing outside? How much of my pie chart is the dog spending uh, with us on walks? Mm. How much of that is it us spending bonding time at home together? And I think that that becomes a really concrete opportunity to look at how your lifestyle is affecting your pet. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess it's difficult without having that visual representation to go, um, you know, how much am I really allowing this pet to get exercise that it needs? Like, you know, I think I'm out two hours a day playing with this dog. But yeah. when I actually check my chart, it looks like I'm only doing 30 minutes. Yeah. Or out of that 24 hour thing. Absolutely. Or the other thing that happens, people go, oh, I walk my dog like three times a day. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the three times a week, 30 minutes a day on a 24 hour pie chart, that's like you know, an hour and a half out of those, the other 22 and a half hours are spending hanging out in the house, which isn't great. And I I imagine another part of the equation too, is if you're asleep, you're not doing anything with your dog. You're maybe tuned out to the fact that the dog's just lying around doing nothing, but Mm -hmm. then you spend your day at work. And so now you've got eight hours when you're asleep and eight hours when you're at work where that dog's not getting and, and actually, like, sleeping, there's lots of studies around this, too, which is really great. Sleeping with your dog, there's a huge health benefits for you and your dog psychologically with that. Not every dog can do that, and I understand that, so I'm not saying that it's, you know, if your dog needs to sleep in a kennel or somewhere else, that that's bad. Mm-hmm. But I will say that there is huge uh, benefits to, to sleeping with your dog in your bed. So, um, like, having the dog in the bed with yeah, you. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I know that lots of, some trainers might totally, like, you know, turn their nose up at that. But there's really fascinating research on the psychological benefits of that for both dogs and people. Um, so that's that I would put under that like bonding time at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the the rest of it, especially when you see behavior problems crop up. Lots of people are try to start fixing behaviors with other things by like correcting the dog if it is misbehaving on leash and it's frustrated and that's obvious um you start to get into the realm of misusing different tools and um it really brings back to like my one of my favorite expressions is dogs don't do things for no reason and they also don't do things suddenly there's going to be a lot of communication that dogs have um and and cats i don't speak cat quite as well as i speak dog i will admit that um that uh, that happens before they get to that point where they're snapping, reacting, destroying things, you know, and they're very body language oriented. And oftentimes we're having a whole conversation with them without even knowing mm-hmm. because we're using our body and our um, uh, line of sight or our facial expressions before we even open our mouths. And that's what the, that's the conversation the dog's having with you before they suddenly did something. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm going through trying to figure out is I just got a kitten. And so the kitten will meow at me Ah. sometimes. And I'm going, okay, I fed you. We've just played. What are you meowing about right now? Or, you know, trying to figure that out. Or the cat's chomping on a light uh, lampshade. And I say, no. And then the cat just stares at me, meows, and then goes back to doing that. Right. (laughs) Are you not biting things enough? Like, you know, get some toys that the cat can bite or something. Which is really great because otherwise, like trying to get angry at animal, we're also, we have a bad tendency as people to expect animals to learn our body language and learn that, you know, our language, whereas really it would be much easier if we took the time to understand their language and look at their, you know, their, um, 
the on both cats and dogs, like tautness of their mouths and their face. Mm. You get that worry expression where their tail carriages, which means two different things on both cats and dogs and taking that time to actually like learn their language and redirect and, and have those opportunities, especially if you've got a young kitten, that's a great mm-hmm. opportunity to start from a young age of building that relationship. And cats in general are a great option for an emotional support. And I, I genuinely wish our government recognized emotional support animals for housing purposes. There'd be a lot less people trying to tell landlords that their dogs are service dogs right. um, because only service dogs are recognized. So that's one of the things I, I would implore. You know, we should be pushing our government to recognize the necessity of, of emotional support animals. Yeah. So people don't have to try to make that jump between you know, well, my dog is from emotional service. It has to be a service dog to be here. Okay, it has to be a service dog. And we don't right. need to do that. The emotional support animals are a huge, uh, have a huge um, purpose and the validity of them is is absolutely essential. Yeah, I mean, that's something that always frustrates me. I'm on a, a yeah. strata council. I have a, a property that I um, rent to a, a couple on disability and, and fortunately they don't want pets, but I've never wanted to restrict them from mm-hmm. having pets. Uh, but I have to because the Strata Corporation has said, we don't allow pets in this building. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly frustrating to think of how many people have pets and are looking for homes and yeah. giving up their pets because they can't find a place that allows mm-hmm. for them or sneaking them in somehow mm-hmm. and creating problems that way. Yeah. So, I mean, it would be really nice to just see a mandate from the government saying, you, you can't recognize. restrict pets like this anymore. That's not okay. Like they did yeah. with rentals. Like you can't restrict rentals anymore. Anyone yeah. who owns a, an apartment that used to be restricted now has to be able to rent it. And one of the recommendations, I think, from the same report that caused that to happen was that there shouldn't be restrictions on animals either. Yeah. I guess that's a little harder when you've got landlords saying, but my carpet might get damaged right. or something like that. Which is which is totally fair. And I think that goes into the realm of like, there's other opportunities to make sure that we've got good pet tenants, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it, it's something that definitely needs to be advocated for. But I... I think, you know, you get young kids with disabilities, seniors, other people with disabilities, people who live alone, emotional support animals, you know, or people who have had trauma or different life events, uh, emotional support animals, like especially the cats are just, they're so, so good for that. Um, yeah. So I had I, a PowerPoint presentation night with some friends, <laughs> one of those interesting things that we do. And uh, one of them did it on the importance of having an animal. Yeah, uh, And this was just before I decided to get my kitten. So she was trying to sort of push me in that direction oh, yeah. a little bit. But uh, <laughs> Subliminal messaging. <laughs> yeah, or not so subliminal. She knew I was looking at the cat and it was her <laughs> sister who was, had, had the kittens. Um, but it was talking about how both dogs and cats are, uh, will reduce people's blood pressure. Mm-hmm. You make them uh, just all around healthier. So there's, there's a huge health yeah. component to having pets as well. Yeah. It is. And that's why also like we as as animal owners need to always make sure um, that all the decisions that we make for them uh, are all encompassing to make sure that their physical, emotional, mental well-being are met because they can't speak for themselves in the way that we as people listen. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of great literature out there on books, you know, to be more mindful of, of learning to speak dog or learning to speak cat and understanding those body language, understanding those signs of emotional or uh, mental uh, restlessness. Um, 
And I think that if you are going to be an animal owner, uh, to prevent that inadvertent neglect or abuse, that taking the time to read these things and educate and and to be passionate about your animal's care and the fact that you are it, you are their guardian, you are their keeper, you are their everything and, and ensure that their existence goes well is, is just, it's so critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So is yeah. there anything else related to abusing animals in ways that people don't understand that we haven't talked about? Yes. Um, how we acquire animals. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are both, uh, you know, there's both ethical and unethical breeders and rescues out there. And so it's our responsibility as owners, pet owners, potential pet owners, to make sure that we understand how dogs are being acquired, moved, cared for before we get them. And it's not like all breeders are bad. Some, no. some breeders are okay. And there's lots of people that are very like, you know, firm on one end of that spectrum or the other. And for me, I think it's about efficacy more than anything. Unfortunately, you get lots of rescue situations where maybe a rescue organization started off meaning well and they become overwhelmed and they start to follow unethical practices like recycling paperwork for dogs without actually getting their shots or doing medical care to get them across the border, Mm -hmm. not actually assessing dogs properly for the homes that they're putting them into. And they're doing that not intentionally maliciously, but because they have this urgency and they feel the weight of how many dogs are in shelters being put down. Mm. Um, and that's really unfortunate because they feel that weight and that responsibility and that desire to help, but the way they end up going about it and doing things uh, becomes unethical and nobody wins in those situations. So what what does someone do in that situation where they think, if I don't do these unethical practices, the pets die, but if I do these unethical practices, then it creates other problems? Well, we have to only, we, we have to remember that we can only do as much as we can do. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's in general for, for every, every single person. And, and definitely running Leash of Hope, we've run into that where we have rescue network people that are like, oh, please, can you help? Do you have any space? Can you help with this dog? And we're like, we can't, we're not in a position to do any kind of rehab. And so it would be unethical of us to say yes and to bring a dog into a situation where we're not equipped to do rehab if that's what it needs. Right. right? So if there's such a huge demand, it sounds like, rather than these existing organizations participating in unethical practices, what we really need is more people creating organizations that can help. Yeah, and, and also creating situations where, um, you know, we all do, people do what they can mm-hmm. and recognizing that. But I think one of the things that happens in some of these higher population, unfortunately, these high kill shelters, is that um, y- people become very focused on trying to rescue absolutely every dog. And again, unpopular opinion here, sometimes we do have dogs that have had such a poor existence, such bad trauma, that it's going to be very hard for them to have any kind of integration into a life, into a family, into a city. And they're such an, in distress SNS firing that sometimes the most humane thing we can do for those animals is to let them go and to euthanize them and give other animals the opportunity to be brought into the city, to be put in this family environments into city or whatever it can. And there's a, there's a level of efficacy that comes down to what's best for that animal. Like I said, that's probably an unpopular opinion. And I'm not saying those dogs deserve to be euthanized or anything like that. But it comes down to like, what you know, who are we putting at risk? Who are we putting in distress? These dogs that are become like that, they don't want to harm anybody. They don't want to be there. Right. And know? so when it comes to, to solving that issue, it sounds like we need to address it before it gets to yeah, that point. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. what, what does that look like? How, how can it be addressed to sort of 
prevent those types of situations from arising in the first place. And I love that question because the reality is there's no bad dogs out there. Dogs get like that because people make them like that. Unfortunately, situational things make them like that. And that can be avoided by rescues, organizations, shelters doing a better job of screening and placing dogs into homes so that they don't bounce back or they don't end up tied up in the backyard somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, or dumped on the side of a a road and having a traumatic incident, ensuring that that there's more programs for that animals to be spayed and neutered so that we don't end up with excess numbers of dogs in populations where it's warmer, uh, where bad things happen to animals. So there's lots of things that we can do to prevent it from getting to that point, mm-hmm. um, as well as having people advocate for no-kill shelters where maybe dogs are just transported before it gets to the point that it's so bad and dogs are crammed into really stressful situations. Right. Right? I, I'm thinking about things like... Um, cars and you need to go through some training and take some tests before you can drive or um, guns. You need to Mm -hmm. know what you're doing with a gun before you can own a gun. Yeah. Do you think something like that should exist for animals? There absolutely should be. I mean, I would like to see uh, city licensing being used as a way to monitor pet owners, uh, good uh, pet owner behavior rather than uh, currently, I think, especially city of Vancouver is very bad for we have a lack of dog parks and, and dog-related areas, mm-hmm. and it feels like city licensing and, and, and dog management is very much used for trying to like catch people not with a t- you know the city license tag or with their dogs off-leash places because there's a lack of dog spaces for dogs to be. But instead, why aren't we using those resources to manage situations where there are dogs that are not in situations that are good or you know, owners where like dogs tied up in the backyard, mm-hmm. being neglected, there'd be a much better resource to um, work with programs like canine good neighbors, things like that, to make sure that our, our dogs are, are good neighbors, rather than trying to just police people and make money off of it. Right. So that that's something that could be done at a government level to try to create some systemic mm-hmm. changes. Exactly. And having appropriate off-leash areas for dogs to actually go with me, because that's a, that's a part of that. Mm-hmm. And making sure dogs have the proper outlet and stimuli, you know, will prevent dogs from being off-leash in kids' parks and will make them better neighbors. Right. Right. So putting in place policies to make sure pets are being treated properly mm-hmm. and then also creating more spaces for those pets to... Yeah to interact with each other, to play, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, and I and I recognize that some people go, oh, we don't really need more like policing of, because the reality is you're always going to get those whistleblowers that end up, I think this happens unfortunately with the SPC all the time. People cry wolf when they think they see a situation that's not abuse and the SPCA spends a lot of time, I'm sure, managing uh, case calls that aren't what people say they are. So I recognize that there's lots of people that might disagree with that methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that there are cities and other places where that city licensing is used to go, you know, t- to manage situations of dogs that have always been left for eight hours straight and the dog is screaming and not being managed properly. And the city goes, that goes, that report goes attached to that, uh, that city license and that tag, and it becomes a reflection on you as a pet owner to do better and to be accountable for how you're treating the animal in your home. Right. And I do have to say the SPCA, uh, in my experience working with them, has done yeah. a great job of making sure that they're not adopting out animals that shouldn't be adopted out well. I mean, yeah. in, 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 in for the most part. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I had an uh, instance where 
an ex of mine was wanting to adopt a cat, and I'm allergic to some cats. Mm -hmm. So they made sure that before they allowed him to take that cat home, I had to go there, rub the cat's bedding in my face, (laughs) make sure I didn't have a reaction because they said this cat's already moved homes a number of times. We need to make sure this is the forever home. And if you're allergic, we're just not going to give you this Mm -hmm. cat because it would put... Not a reason for it to bounce back. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's so great. And they also do a really great job of offering... Um, affordable veterinary services for people who are low income. So it gives Mm -hmm. that as an opportunity to make sure that animals have appropriate care for people who might not be able to afford it otherwise. So I think the SPC does do a really good job with stuff like that. It can be really expensive to have a pet. So like you've got all these great benefits to having a pet. um, And at the same time, there's the cost of owning a pet, which can be um, a mental drain. It can be just all, all sorts of Uh, It can create all sorts of problems. So I wonder from that perspective, is there an element of animal abuse in terms of I can't afford to buy my cat or dog the right food. I can't afford to take my animal to the vet when it needs mm-hmm. to go to the vet, things like that. There can be, and that's a, that's a hard one. And that, and that stuff, that stings, it can hurt sometimes to think, be like, well, I'm just doing my best for it. My cat, cat or dog is is totally happy. And and there's there's truth that at the same time, it's not about us. Mm-hmm. They're a living, breathing animal that can't go you know, whatever it is, ow, my stomach really hurts. No, really, really like they're not, they're not going to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have that responsibility regardless of how we feel or how, you know, it's, there's not a criticism. If we can't afford something, then it becomes a problem of how does that impact their well-being? And that's why, uh, you know, being a pet owner that is low income, then know what your resources are, know what your options are, have those backup plans, Mm -hmm. whatever that they are. Right. Are there solutions for people in that situation? Like, can someone go to the SPCA and say, my pet needs help. I have no money to pay for it. Like, what do I do? Are there options available to them? I believe that the SPCA has a really good program where if you're on disability, you get some discounted um, uh, rates for things. I know that there's a couple of vet programs out there that offer grants to cover expenses for animals that have had major things crop up, maybe like leukemia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are different programs like that. There's some vets that will do, will do, you know, a free day or a, a you know, a low income day or have low income programs. So it's really about reaching out to the resources and, and looking up what's in your community around you mm-hmm. because they are, those options are there. Um, and it's like, that's, you know, having, having animals is like having a permanent toddler, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, just like if you were to have a toddler, it, sometimes it doesn't matter, you know, how criticized we, f- we feel about our financial situation. They still need what they need. Right. That's a hard one. Just that's a really hard one. a way to make it work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either way, I know it's great because animals will love us no matter what we do. And that's <laughs> the miracle of them that we're so blessed to have these creatures in our, in our lives. And I think that's why we, uh, as animal owners need to do absolutely everything we can to do right by them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that note, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to, to chat about? Um, no, I will say that if this is something that people are like passionate about, there's definitely lots of, uh, whether it's a rescue organizations, uh, whether it's things like SPCA, shelters, organizations like ours, like Leash of Hope, there's lots of ways people can support programs like this, mm-hmm. uh, or even just doing the things to take those times, like looking up uh, what products that they're using are cruelty-free, 
you know, making those little choices, anything from that to like volunteering for an organization or making donations to an organization can be great ways to um, show that support for animal welfare and, um, and, and, and as pet owners doing that research and taking the time to really understand your animal is something that I would highly encourage. Absolutely. I mean, I, I normally end our podcast by asking what our listeners can do to oh, help. And it sounds you like, yeah, you, <laughs> you've answered that question. So thanks for uh, wrapping that up so nicely. Uh, if there's nothing else that uh, that you'd like to raise, I think that brings us to the end of our podcast. No, I, unless there's something else you want to throw at me, then I think that's it. But uh, if anyone's interested uh, in getting to know more about uh, Leash of Hope, uh, you can find us on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Leash of Hope Dogs. Um, and uh, I myself am on these platforms uh, as well and do a lot of advocacy for people with disabilities and um, uh, accessibility advocation. So I have my own uh, main insight is, is my handle if anyone's interested in more of that kind of things. And otherwise, definitely come in and check out our socials for Leash of Hope and see some cute dogs. Great. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really interesting discussion and I really appreciate all of your perspectives. My pleasure. This has been a social justice podcast. Again, I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling. I've been joined here today with uh, Danielle Main to talk about animal abuse and I'll see you again in three weeks. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.